Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love to talk to creative types. And today my guest is the author, Eddie Shapiro. He wrote a book called A Wonderful Guy, Conversations with the Great Men of Musical Theater. Uh, it's the follow-up to his book, Nothing Like a Dame, which is interviews with the great women of musical theater. And I really wanted to talk to Eddie because... West Side Story was opening. I had just seen Tick, Tick, Boom. Sondheim had passed away. I had musicals on the brain. And so we made it happen. But before we get to that, I want to get a plug in for my website, DennisAnyone.net. Uh, you can see all the past episodes there. You can see other stuff I'm up to. You can donate to my virtual tip jar, help me cover the cost of the podcast, all that fun stuff. And we're also hosting virtual game nights of You Don't Know My Life. We've been doing a ton of them. The other day, we did a game with players that all work for the same company, some were in the U.S., some were in Brazil, some were in Poland, and one guy was in India. And we all played together, and we all had a blast. So if you're looking for something fun to do on Zoom with your people, whether it's work people or friends or family, hit us up at youdon'tknowmylife.com and buy the box game just in time for Christmas at amazon.com. So that's all the plugs for this week. Here is the interview with Eddie Shapiro. Joining me now via Zoom, it's my old friend Eddie Shapiro. He's the author of the book, A Wonderful Guy, Conversations with the Great Men of Musical Theater. It's a follow-up to another book of his that I love, Nothing Like a Dame, Conversations with the Great Women of Musical Theater. You must have a great sense of completion because you've got, you, you know, you've got the bookends now. Oh, you know, that's that's sweet that you think that. Um, yes. Is there, is there ever such a thing as completion? There's always, you know, what's left? What didn't I do? And and in fact, um, uh, when the pandemic started, I finished A Wonderful Guy. Um, the last interview I did for it was on March 8th of 2020. So right before shutdown, I was with Jonathan Groff, and that was the final interview. But then we locked down, and... When we were locked down um, and uh, all of the performers are at home and I was at home and I thought, well, I guess it's time to do another volume. So even though the, the previous two volumes had only been in-person interviews, I decided I would do Zoom because everybody was at home. Everyone was home. I'm now into a third volume on, well, a second volume on, on, on more women. Yay! I'm so glad to hear that because... Your first book with the women had so many of the greats, but there were a few like, oh, that would have been cool, or she's really blown up since this book. Exactly. So I'm very happy to hear that. Um, my other thought that you that you just reminded me of is, what if you had had to lock down with Jonathan Groff? That's my, uh, I would love that. Well, I mean, of course, there's the whole pseudosexual angle there, but um, <laughs> Jonathan Groff locked down in, Jonathan Groff is from Amish country, oh. and he locked down in, rural Pennsylvania on a farm. Right. So um, I think it would have been a completely different life. It would have been Green Acres. It would have been Green Acres with you and Jonathan Groff. I've already decided that when Jonathan Groff and I go on our first date, that I will be able to say to him, I can hold two things in my head at the same time, that you are true good friends with Leah Michelle, and that she might be unpleasant to work with at times. I, I'm fine with both of those. I don't need you to choose. I can, I can, I can roll with it. I our love, love our love is that strong. I love the diplomacy of that second statement. Right? I can roll with it. I can roll with it. Yeah, because they 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 have an enduring friendship and it's who am I to judge? They if really she... do. And no, actually, I'll I'll tell you two things uh, on on that particular topic. Um one, I 
I have my own personal experiences with Leah Michelle, which are not hellacious, but they're also eyebrow raising. But then <laughs> I, I, I do, I do know Jonathan. I know him well enough to to really know him to be a truly lovely, yes, wonderful person. And given that, um, I have to trust his judgment yes. in terms of like, like, oh. Obviously, yes. At least with hair, she, he he sees something else in her. Yes, so, that's what yeah. we're going to talk about on our first date. Get it right out of the way. Good, you know? good for you. Good yeah. for you. Well, yeah. I I look forward to hearing the report. He's seeing somebody right now, but Jonathan Groff has a history of seeing people internationally. Ooh. So, and he's doing that again. So it seems to me that you know it's only a matter of time before he decides to go domestic. Well, Burbank, uh, North Hollywood, Burbank border where I am, that feels international to some people. Well, so. especially if one is living in Amish country. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I was very excited to talk to you. We've been trying to make this happen for a while. But then when Sondheim passed away, and then with the West Side Story coming out today, and I'm going tonight, I'm like, I want to talk about theater with somebody. And you, and I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to make this happen. So here we are. Um, I love it. Talk to me about your feelings when Sondheim passed away, because I was hit harder by it than I thought I would be. I, I really like, not in terms of like um, devastation, but I just played his music all weekend and I thought about it and I and I wasn't there were a lot more diehards than me but I was like wow this person really moves me um yeah. I'm yeah. a Sondheim um uh, 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 uh like he he's super important to me and so far like I even when when they in 2002 when they did the Sondheim celebration at the Kennedy Center in Washington DC I was directing AIDS Walk Atlanta at the time and I made pilgrimage over two separate weekends to go see those shows and I actually met my ex who was sitting next to me at Sunday in the Park with George and I was weeping at intermission and he's like dude are you okay and then I dated him for four years wow. so um, so like Sondheim plays a really really important part in my in my role and I mean in my life and if you look at these books anybody whose work with Sondheim which is the vast majority of these people I talk to them at length about it Sondheim is endlessly fascinating to me not just of course because of the of the work and the artistry but his if you know anything about him as a man his generosity as as a human um, in trying really really hard um, not just to mentor and to um, uh, help younger generations but also to help performers really um, uh, understand and grow and get and develop he's he was constantly giving to the art form not just sort of writing and saying you know here's my work it's done so I really love him for that um and 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 because his career is so long and far-reaching um uh he touches almost all of the people i spoke to um uh so it's incredibly moving to me having had all of those perspectives from different people my own personal sadness comes from the fact that aside from being a a, a massive fan um and I have a story um, that I'll tell you at another time about when I was 20 years old and I did a window in a store when Assassins opened on Broadway and I burnt a hole in the American flag and put his picture in the center of it. And, you know, we had to have some words about it, you know. You and Sondheim. He <laughs> yeah, didn't like yeah. it. No, well, he did, actually, or at least he pretended to. He Ultimately, I changed the window for him because he was just afraid that it was controversial. And he sent me a note and he said, you know, thank you so much for changing it. It's a lot less smart-ass right now. So, you know. All right. That's wonderful, though. Backhanded compliment from Sondheim. Yeah. But, um, but, but the thing about him that, that really strikes me um, is that throughout our 
both of our lifetimes, every single Sondheim production that, that we've seen, every single one at a major institution anyway, on Broadway and, and on uh, off-Broadway and uh, on um, the West End here in Los Angeles, um, he's involved all the time. He shows up at rehearsals and his fingerprints are on it. He talks to actors, even if he's only there for a couple of days, he talks to actors about why to emphasize this note or why the word is, 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 is meant is this, you know, he, so his, his intention has been um, not for people to interpret or guess his intention has been direct um, because he's had direct involvement in every single major production throughout our lives. And now that will, that will no longer be. Um, So that, that, that hits me hard. But the flip side the flip side, if you stop and think, if you read the obituaries carefully, if you stop and think about what we know, um, he was working on a new musical. Assassins opened off Broadway um, a week ago. He was looking for, to, for, forward to the company opening, which was just last night in New York, um, and the West Side Story premiere. He had Thanksgiving dinner with friends. He went home to his husband. Um, uh, he was seemed to be in decent health. He wasn't. He wasn't ill. The, the death was sudden. So it seems like, yeah, that at ninety four, you really can't, or ninety one rather, you can't really ask for more yeah. than that right to be and he so got vital. to see the finished west side story i'm i'm assuming yeah, yeah. and he loved it yeah he in fact Lynn Mo miranda is quoted as saying that you know his last communication with sondheim um was a very recent email where he said you done good kid oh i love that i was more I moved that's not what i meant i meant steven spielberg i'm sorry and they called each other ss1 and ss2 oh really so he said <laughs> His his last correspondence with Steven Spielberg was you did Steven good Spielberg. kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love yeah. it. Um, I said Lynn Manuel Miranda because I just watched Tick Tick Boom today, and Tick Tick Boom, as you may know, Sondheim's a character in it, played by Bradley Whitford. Very um, convincingly, so, he really nails yeah. it. Had you seen it yet? Would, today, were you seeing it the first time? The, the yeah, movie? I saw it for the first time today. Yeah, I've seen it twice. I think it's fantastic. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's it's really something. And the Sondheim mentoring in it is so beautifully depicted because he comes to showcases and he's, and you could tell he's choosing every word that he says to these young artists carefully for maximum encouragement. He's not blowing smoke, but he wants them to keep going. Yeah. And he's, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's not over, he's not like over talking and using a lot of stuff. Like he's like, well, I thought it was swell. And I'm like, that's all that kid needs to hear to keep, yeah. that'll buy him two more years. And that's true, Dennis, of his written communication, too. I have a few letters from him, and he is so, which, unsurprising. I mean, he's a master wordsmith, or was, but um, he is so economic with his words. Um, He is not verbose at all. You know, you'll get notes that are two or three sentences long, and they're they're really specific and to the point, and they don't need more words. He says it in in that amount of space. And he says it to... To the benefit of the person getting it, because he's he's yeah, trying to yeah. lift them up, he's trying to keep them going. Um, it's, it's so moving to me, and I also <laughs> thought, well, if you're a writer and you don't feel like writing, you could really justify encouraging young artists like that. You know what? I didn't get a thing written today, but you know what I did? I encouraged a bunch of young people. That's good. Yeah. I can I can live with that. That's a life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm not trying to I'm not trying to say it's not great, but I could I could see the writer in me going. Oh, that'll, yeah, I'd rather not well, face that. Especially when you, I mean, if you, if, you, 
if you watch Tick, Tick, Boom and you think about like, you know, he knows that in leaving a voicemail message, you know, I mean, as you probably know, that voicemail that's at the end of the movie Tick, Tick, Boom, Sondheim actually recorded that. That's him. Um, that's not Bradley Redford. That's yeah. Sondheim. So he recorded it for the movie, knowing full well, I mean, this may or may not have been an exact quote of what he said um, to Jonathan Larson in, in real life. But he he recorded that knowing full well that the, the message that he's leaving is coming from revered icon and 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 knowing that his words are going to have maximum impact and um that he sort of understands that power and doles it out generously i think one of the great things about being famous depending on the kind of fame is that you can make somebody's month by just showing up you walk in a room jennifer aniston was there last night that buys me a month. Like, you know what I mean? Like, and Sondheim, especially with other creatives and much more specific kind of attention, he knows the power of it and he's generous with it. I yeah. love that. I find that the most moving part, I think, of, yeah. of his journey. Um, beautiful. And if you read A Wonderful Guy and the accounts of people talking about their direct experiences with him, particularly people like Rolla Sparza and Michael Cerverus, who'd done multiple Sondheims and really learned tremendous amounts, or even Gavin Creel doing, um, uh, you know, the failed show, um, Bounce Out on the Road. Uh, they're, they're just, their appreciations of him are, um, through specific stories and specific anecdotes, just really illustrate um, what a man of the art form he was and how devoted he was um, to the to the art and to communicating the art. And, um, you know, it's funny. I mean, the whole theme of, of, of Sunday in the Park with George, which is probably my favorite of the Sondheims for a number of reasons, but, you know, it's the two things that we leave behind. It's children and art. Yeah. And, um, and um, so that's what we have now is the art. I heard another commentator, I think it was on The Daily, they did an episode about him, but Sondheim also sort of said that art can be as full of love as a romantic relationship or a, or a, or as family, which resonates for somebody that might be single or whatever. Like he didn't say like, "Oh, art's fun and creative, but it's really about love and family." And if right. you don't have those things, well, you're kind of missing the boat on life. Well, he of course, didn't say that. Well, he he's not wasn't in a position to say that. He had a terrible childhood, right? And- didn't find love until he was, you know, after the age of 60. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so art was, was what he had. Right. Um, and but of can, course, chosen he, family too. He had the, the, the family of the, the, the theatrical community. So, yeah. And, and that can be as deep of a love and as, as abiding a love as anything sort of related to yeah. uh, romance or family or, or marriage or, or things like that. Um, Absolutely. I love it. I want to talk more about your book, and I have some Sonic stuff I might bring up later. But um, to me, I was thinking about this. Music theater seems to be the one area of popular culture where it's really about the ladies. Maybe yes. I'm just saying that as a gay man, but I've, I can you can see tables of people at brunch talking about who should sing what role and who could play Evita and she doesn't have the belt. I don't think people are talking about the men that way. Um, I don't think they have the mystique. I don't think they have the diva. And is it just because of gay men? Are the are, what's going on there? Because I feel like I feel like 
the, the female stars of musical theater are just bigger. Yes. In our imagination. Am I right? Or is it just me projecting brunch time conversation? No, I I think you're absolutely right. And it's in fact why I was um, initially reluctant to write A Wonderful Guy, why it took me a few years. And why you were so into writing Nothing Like a Dame. Like why you were, like that was, I know you've been working on that for years and it was a real passion project. Right, yes. that, that and wonderful guy was too once I was in it, but I had to talk myself into it. Right, and um, that's the thing. Yeah, and the reason I had to talk myself into it, it was because of the things that you talk about. And then also I was like, well, the guys will actually have a perspective on that. Yeah, they so they that, know it. That, yeah, they know exactly. it. They're like, I'm awesome, but I'm not Patty Lapone. Right, but right? the art form, I think it has to do with the art form. I think it has to do with, um, uh, first of all, a lot of musical theater is written by gay men, so therefore they write for, you know, the diva. But right. then... Um, what really thrills you the most when you're uh, at a musical theater performance um, isn't something that most men can produce with the possible exception of Alex Newell. It's that, you know, it's that huge, uh, that soaring belt um, that, 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 or that whale of despair or, or uh, that, that, um, I mean, you think of the great songs of, of, of musical theater and there it's, it's memory before it's, yeah, I'm sorry that I brought up Andrew Lloyd Webber. That's all right. Theater. But it's it's losing my mind before it's any male song of of Sondheim's. You know, it's it's um or or I'm still here. It's um uh, the even, music is, is even Adina Menzel going whoa on that Wicked commercial. That's a moment. Like right. you you feel exactly. it, right? Exactly. And, and as talented as as men are, I don't think they have those things. Do they? Those chances I mean, or their voices. Some- Look, there have been certainly not vocally in that way. There are certainly men, Brian Stokes Mitchell, you know, Norm Lewis, um, uh, John Raitt, who have you know amazing right. instruments. Um, but it's 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 not quite the same. Um, and uh, yeah, but, that's what's interesting. Why? What's going on there? I, I I just I think that there's a there there's a different thrill that's achieved when you hear. Uh, the, uh, a, a woman's range. I also think that again, that as written, the characters, because they're largely or often written by gay men, I think that the gay men tend to favor the writing for the women. Yeah. Um, so, um, but you know, for every Mama Rose, there is a King of Siam, or there is yeah. a uh, there is a, a, a Harold Hill in The Music Man, or there is a, a, a Tevia. I mean, there are great male roles, but even those roles. They're great roles, but they're not. Think of now the great song that Yul Brynner has in The King and I. It's a puzzlement. It's not a great number. Right. Think of the great song. It's Trouble in The Music Man. It's not a great number. It's, it's not It's rap. not Mama's turn. It's not Rose's right, turn or whatever. Exactly. exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Ben Vereen on your list of people that you interviewed, and that was yeah. a star turn. That was like a wow moment with Pippin, I yeah, think. But that, that had was- a bit of that sort of like, Wow. The wow right. factor, I guess, right? Or, or, or Hugh Jackman in, in, in Boy From Oz has yes. that wow factor. But uh, also, I think that has to do, in, in Ben Vereen's case, um, I think if you divorce it from the Fosse, then it might not have. That's true. Take nothing away from Ben Vereen, but it's the physicality of that yes. role. Uh, you know, same with um, um, uh, Joel Gray in in Cabaret. It's it's a great interpretation, but it's the 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 look and the feel of it as much as anything else, not just the acting. Right, um, and so- and all three of the ones we just talked about: Joel Gray, Ben Vereen, and Hugh Jackman. They were allowed to be feminine. They were allowed to be fabulous. Yes, they didn't have to play 
a man, right? And that's sure. what gives them possibly part of that wow factor that we're honing in on. I just find and it when, interesting. Like, when if, you, yeah. When you think about the, 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 the stalwarts, right? So if you're going to call like Patty Lapone and Burnett Peters and, 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 and Betty Buckley um, or Sutton Foster, you know, these are the people who, the, the women who have these long careers in musical theater. So who are the, the, of the golden age? Who are the men? It's, you know, Richard Kiley and John Rake and Alfred Drake. And those guys all worked throughout their careers, but they don't have signatures the way Mary Martin or Ethel Merman or Gwen Verdon did. Right. It's it's the art form. It's just different. And the men know it, right? Yeah, absolutely. How do they feel about it? I mean... It's hard to generalize, but... But one of my favorites was Michael Cerberus, who has talked, uh, who, who who says he prides himself in being like the leading man to a full variety of leading ladies, right. and like in the service of, right. um, and uh, and 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 even went so far as to say uh, in the service of difficult leading ladies or people who are perceived, perceived to be difficult leading ladies, and um, he realized that in that role and even in taking pride in that role, he has sometimes done himself a disservice um, because he can get quite used to neglecting his own needs. So he's, oh, we're in a rehearsal, we're in a rehearsal room with Patti Lapone or Donna Murphy, and they need a lot of time and attention because they're exploring everything. And then he's gonna, he's gonna give, he's gonna be patient with that. He's gonna give over to that and ever ask for his own time. And then he realizes he's in tech week and he's like, and I didn't ask for anything. Oops. And yeah. I, I could spend some time, you know, with the director also getting some feedback and some exploration and, um, so that taking of a backseat is something that he sort of looked at and said, I'm good at it, but it's not necessarily a good I, good thing. It doesn't always serve me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember, I, I we were going to do this interview a while ago, and I remember preparing. There's a funny story about Cheyenne Jackson's shorts and Xanadu. And <laughs> I would argue that a lot of times when shows do 80s or 70s shorts, they think they're going short enough, and they're not. They were shorter. They were almost obscene. But Cheyenne Jackson had a strategy around the shorts. Uh, do you refresh my memory? Well, he uh, his shorts just kept getting shorter and shorter. Damn right they did. And then he said that that you know he was a little bit bummed out not to get a Tony nomination um, for that show. Um, and I, I I agree with him; he deserved one. Um, but so when they did the television, um, you know, they, they still did a number on the Tony Awards because it was nominated for Best Musical. And um, uh, so th- they wanted him to wear sort of his longest shorts to be television appropriate. And he was like, "Fuck that! I'm wearing the shortest pair I've got." And I'm, I'm, I'm I didn't get my nomination, but he's like, "So they could practically like my testicles were practically hanging out." Yeah, here's shirt. my sack. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love it. Um, Cheyenne Jackson's a good example of this. There are a number of openly gay actors in your book. A lot of uh, sort of younger people. Was that something that came up in your interviews? The idea of the, of being able to be out and do your thing, and it's not a big deal, or it is a big deal. Um, what did you, what did you notice from your conversations in general about being out or not? It's actually uh, not true that it's a lot of younger people. I mean, the very first chapter of the book is Joel Gray and Joel Gray is coming out, um, you know, in later life and the reasons why, you know, he talks throughout his chapter about sort of his, his, 
being gay and not in touch with that or what that meant in terms of being a young gay guy in Hollywood and chumming around with Larry Kurt as another young gay guy in Hollywood and, you know, sort of seeing each other, but the unspoken stuff and, and then transitioning to sort of the next generation. And, and you've got people like Howard McGillan who came out sort of in the middle of his career. Um, and, um, uh, you know, he, he's the go-to leading man on Broadway with things like the mystery of Edwin Drood and anything goes. Um, and she loves me. And then it comes time to like, you know, kiss of the spider woman. And he's coming out at that time and wow. playing you know, the gay role in kiss of the spider woman and how massive that was for him. Um, uh, and then, then you get to people like Jonathan Groff or Gavin Creel, um, or Raul Esparza, the, the younger generation, um, for whom, you know, they were always gay and they were, I mean, out from the time that they were working and, um, uh, and they were, um, the obstacles were different. Um, you know, they're working and living in an environment as we are now where, where you, you can be without it feeling like career suicide. Um, so I actually really like, if you're looking at it from a gay perspective, um, I really like, one of the things I like about the book overall is that it creates by having each of the the, the 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 conversation stands on its own, but if you read them together, you're getting a tapestry of the generations and what it means to be an actor in the last over the last 50, 60 years. Um, so now look at it from a gay perspective, and same thing. You're watching the full arc of of uh, um, gay assimilation um, uh, just played out through 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 the career of musical theater, and I find it really interesting. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. And it, I do find it inspiring when I see, you know, out actors doing their thing and Jonathan Groff popping up in the Spider-Man trailer. And I'm like, oh, honey, I can't wait to talk to you about that when we go on vacation together. Yeah, Whatever yeah, it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Um, how much money does a leading man on Broadway make? Do you have any idea? Yeah, I do, but it's, it's, it's really all over the map. It's also all over the map for the women too. But, um, because there, there are so many, different kinds of projects what Hugh Jackman is doing where he's headlining a yeah. show right now by headlining the music man versus um what um Jonathan Groff made when he did Little Shop of Horrors off Broadway for really for because he wants to do the part yeah um he's playing at a tiny theater off Broadway and also when these shows transition from you know okay it's a limited run to we're extended and we're going commercial now you know, the contracts change, but you know, it, it's still not tons. I mean, a, a healthy number, an average number, I'm going to say is probably about, you know, $7,000 a week. Um, and th it's, it's, that sounds healthy, uh, like a healthy income uh, until you consider that for somebody who, who, not like Jonathan Groff, who's, you know, now in the matrix and, you know, yeah. has plenty of money opportunity. But if you're, if you're doing a, a, a theater career and you're appearing on Broadway, yeah, for that year that you're doing that show, you're making good money if you're the lead. Um, but then it's going to be three, four, five years bef before the next, your next one. Show. Yeah. So you, you really have to bank on that. One of the things I love to talk to on the people about on this podcast are the ups and downs of being in a creative career. What did you learn from these men about like being hot, being not hot, giving up, not giving up, resilience, hanging in? It was that a theme that that comes up? I know in the interviews I've read, and I haven't read all of them. There there are those people that were like, well, then my career died, and then I, you know, came right. crawling back to Broadway. You know. Well, let's remember that every single person that I talked to um, in this book 
is at the top of their game. Um, uh, so, I mean, they may not be at this moment, but certainly has been, at, you yeah. know, at the, at the top of the game for, for a good long amount of time. So, um, there are, there are, there are, everybody has, has had some adversity, but they've triumphed over adversity. Right. Um, uh, however, there are stories in there, um, about people saying that, you know, they thought it was over or for that matter, Howard McGillan is actually a good example of, you know, he's a, he was a super handsome leading man who's now, you know, almost 70 years old. Yeah. Um, and so he's looking at it and thinking, well, I had a great run. I hope to get to do more stuff, but who knows what that's going to look like. Yeah. Um, but even separate from that, there's, you know, the insecurity of the business I actually asked Audra McDonald the question about at what point did you think I never have to worry right. about waiting tables ever again. Right. And she, she said, never. And that's common. That's with the men and the women, uh, uh, the numbers of people who just, you would think that job security, the notion that, Oh, there'll be a next show is, you know, there, nobody's worried about that. They're all worried about it. They're, they're all worried all about worried it. About yeah. There's going to be, and the saddest story, you know, Will Chase talks in my book at great length about television and how much more money there is and why it really makes sense for him to do it. But the saddest of, of, of those stories to me was Norbert Leo Butts. Norbert Leo Butts, as you know, you know, original Fierro and Wicked, but two-time Tony Award winner, one for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, one for Catch Me If You Can. And at the time I talked to him, he was doing My Fair Lady on Broadway. And um, I asked him about Big Fish. Um, and Big Fish, as you know, yeah. was a big flop. Right. Um, and uh, he said, at first he didn't want, even want to talk about it because it was so painful. But then he said, that show, um, really, between the amount of years that you put into it, yeah. the amount of time that you're doing workshops and then you're on the uh, you're, you're, and, and then you're doing a, a lab reading and the, and you're doing backers presentation and then you're out on the on out of town tryout it's years of that before it gets to broadway and you're actually finally going to make money and then it opens on broadway and closes 3 weeks later and you've put year, you've invested years of your life in it yeah. it's like i can't afford to do new musicals anymore I've got two kids. I have yeah. tuitions to support. I can't afford to do new music. I can afford to do My Fair Lady because yeah. My Fair Lady is tried and true. And we know that, you know, we're not going to have to try out and do all that, you know, yeah. years of process. But I can't afford to do mu new musicals. And if that's, I can't say objectively whether or not that's factually true for everybody. But certainly for a two-time Tony Award winner to have that perspective on the business is really sad. Yeah. But it makes sense. You get it. It's hard earned. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's a time when you were doing your interviews where you remember laughing? Oh my God. So many times. I mean, sometimes there are just stories that are insane. Um, you know, uh, one of my favorites is, you know, Christopher Sieber talking about, um, when he went on in, into the woods for Cinderella's Prince. He was playing Rapunzel's Prince. Um, uh, Greg Edelman threw his back out um, in the middle of a show, like during a show, during because they they both played the wolf. So during Hello Little Girl, Greg Edelman throws his back out. They walk off stage, and and Greg Edelman like can't go on. So like 
Prince, you, you're going to have to go do Cinderella's Prince. And he's like, I got this. I got this. Because he's grown up listening to the cast album. Even though they're early, early, early in the run. I think it's still previews. He's like, no problem. And the stage manager's like, are, like are, it's this, it's this. And he's like, I got it. I got it. But the one thing that he hadn't ever done or rehearsed, there's the scene, if you know, into the woods, where at the end of Act One, um, they're cutting off the stepsister's toe and heel, and there's blood in the shoe. And the way that effect is achieved is the prince actually has a, a little hose that is at his wrist and it, it, it snakes oh, no. around his back yeah. and there's a there, the blood is in a bag taped to his back yeah. and then on the other hand he's got a pump so he pumps the thing and the blood trickles from from his wrist into the shoe and then he pours it out well he's pumping nothing's coming um and so he pumps some more and he pumps some more and he pumps some more not knowing that it takes time for the air so yeah. all of a sudden it's he, like he's pumped you know 15 times and nothing's come out and then all of a sudden it starts spurting out right and it's spraying the the it's spraying the conductor like right. it fills the shoe with blood lord benanti comes out puts it like looks in the shoe like it's full <laughs> and, like, puts 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 her foot in it like splashes blood yeah he, he has to it turns into Sweeney Todd. Yeah. Onto the white horse, the white plastic horse. Yeah. And like she smears blood on the horse. Oh my God. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, like, stories like that. Yeah. Where you're just dying. You're just yeah. dying. But then sometimes you're dying inside because there's just crazy. Like, you know, like, like, like talking to, I mean, this goes back to the first book, but talking to Elaine Stritch when she would say things to me like, you know, Eddie, what the fuck kind of question is that? That's 50 years ago. How the hell am I supposed to remember how I felt? Right. And like, you know, and you're, you're you, it's just, you, it's hysterical. Yeah. But it's exactly what you want it to be. You right. Know? I want to get yelled at by Elaine Stritch. Exactly. I, I can exactly. check that off. What was the time that moved you when you were maybe cried or were moved to tears? So many of those too. And by the way, um, I make them cry a lot. And, uh, Seth Rodetsky asked me the question once. He said, you know what? Because Seth loves those, you know, crazy antic moments. Yeah. And and I said, Seth, you know, they, 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 they giggle with you more. They cry with me. I think I'm the Barbara Walters of this gig. Right. Uh, but um, uh, I remember... I mean, people have some stories that are that are super, super moving a lot of the time about their parents, their parents' relation to to seeing them or sometimes to do with their kids, sometimes to do with their health. Um, I I've also been moved to the flip side of Elaine Stritch. This is moving. Not that what she said was moving, but it was just moving to me because it was personal about me uh elaine stritch had been so cantankerous with me and so difficult um uh although she softened during I, she was very eyebrow raising yeah right. <laughs> she softened because at one point she said eddie it's the past and i get so bored talking about the past all the time and i said you're one woman show notwithstanding and then she literally sat up straight in her chair and her whole aspect changed um because you I got a little like, sassy okay. you got a little sassy uh, yeah yeah I, I, do. I do get sassy but she called me up to tell me the judy garland story and i 
was like, Elaine, I got to tell you, like hearing this stuff, I mean, it's like getting presents from Santa. Yeah. And she said, well, that's why I called because I, you know, I get so bored talking about the past all the time. But when I talk to you, you have such a genuine love and enthusiasm for this stuff that I get excited to tell you the story. Yes. And I heard that. I'm so happy to have it on tape because I was like, oh my God. Yes. <laughs> they see you because you do have that. You're you're very passionate. You're very interested. You're a good listener, and you're not judgy. Like you, they can. I can understand somebody being really uh, able to open up to you about this stuff because they know you care, and they they know that it that you'll that it'll land with you in the way they want it to land. I think that's I, a a gift. Thank you for 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 that. I get asked all the time um, why people were so open with me because there are so many stories in this book that have never been told yeah. that have been said out loud. And I, I, I can't be objective about that answer. I can say, you know, I don't, I, I'm just me. Um, but I will say that I feel like, um, one of the things is, is exactly what you just said that, 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 um, they get that I, I really do love them and their work and I'm there to honor them, not to zing them, not to yeah. catch them in something. Um, and, um, uh, I just heard from, who was it? Who, oh, Christian Borle. Um, Christian Borle, who said to me, uh, he read his interview, and, and he's pretty press-averse. And he said, I was so honored to be so well taken care of. Oh, that's um, lovely. And, yeah. 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 Um, Christian uh, Borle, I've, I've seen him on, on stage, I'm sure, in things. But then I remember when he was on Smash, do you love when you see one of your musical theater people pop up in another thing? Like, if you saw the show Dope Sick, it was full of Broadway people. It was yeah. Will Chase. It was the uh, from Hamilton, the, the the actress. It was like theater people. Do, do you always go, oh, yay, good for you. Yes, Cash that I, check. I absolutely do. Um, uh, because in a lot of cases, it means good. You'll make the money and you'll come back to Broadway. Right. Um, it's also super fun for me, like in Tick, Tick, Boom, where's there, where there's that scene in the diner where it's, you know, anybody who doesn't, who isn't on the inside might not recognize all of those people, but it's a, every single person in that scene is, a, is, is, is a Broadway somebody. Um, and also to see them all in a room and think, uh, and this is nar totally narcissistic of me, but I see them all in a room together and I'm like, well, I've sat down with like, you know, two thirds yeah, of you. Talk to him, had, her, <laughs> had him, had him, had him twice. Yeah, you're yeah. all my people. Yeah. Did yeah. you, were you moved by that scene? I thought it was such a Valentine to Broadway that moment. I cried. Yeah. I cried. He crushed it, Lin-Manuel. I'm into it. I'm all about it. Um, did you have a Sondheim story once where you went to the theater and he was sitting behind you? Does this sound familiar? Yes! I remember because oh. when we were having dinner all the time in the early 2000s, you oh, had a story no. where you, and you were holding a book or you had something. No, Dennis, it's it's after our having dinners all the time. And the reason I told you this story is because you gave me the book. So you gave me this book, which I think oh, is- Oh, it's about fandom. Right. Okay. It's about fandom called Starstruck, I believe. Yes. And it was a really interesting book. And it was really good. He and James Lapine were sitting directly in front of me. And so I said to them, I was like, I know this is sound really weird, but this book that I'm reading right now is all about, uh, you know, the uh, adoration. And I adore the two of you. And it would mean so much to me. So they both signed it. Oh, they that's what it was. Like, they looked at each other kind of quizzically, like, what the fuck is this guy talking yeah. about? But they both signed it. <laughs> I love it. Um, the other thing that I thought about Sondheim when he, 
when he passed away is I discovered him kind of in musical theater ensemble college years. But he makes young people feel smart. Like if you're if you're a teenager and you you discover him, you were like you you it makes you feel smart. Like yes. I'm doing Sondheim. Like I I understand the nuances. Like right, and, right. And, you can be a cultural elitist because you you get Sondheim. Yeah. But it gives you a boost. It gives you a little confidence. It kind of makes you feel good about yourself, right? Totally. In a way that maybe I don't know other composers not as much in that no, way. No, no. Or like uh, just like of sort of saying that you love Andrew Lloyd Webber, you have to say somewhat sheepishly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you do. Um, uh, the other thing that I loved about him, and from what I read in the coverage, is so many times with young people, if you want to pursue show business, everyone tells you how hard it is. Everyone tells you how awful it is, or have something to fall back on, or you better not love anything else because you got to. If you can do anything else, you should do it. And I think he was like, "Yeah, it's hard, but it's a lot. You could do this." Like I right. think he didn't oversell the hardship of it and he he did sell the the love of it like this is a good life this could be a great life yeah i i think that's 100 percent true um and uh of course when you think about his sort of milieu in which he came up Right. As a 27 year old to be in a room with Leonard Bernstein and, and Arthur Lawrence and Jerome Robbins writing and creating West Side Story. Um, uh, you know, it's sort of like when 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 beautiful people fall into love relationships so easily and you're like, oh, well, sure, you, of course, whatever. Right. It, it just sort of like he was just there automatically from the time he blossomed because of his associations with Oscar Hammerstein. And of course, I'm not saying he didn't have the talent to back it up, but but mentored by Oscar Hammerstein got him into the right rooms at the right time so that he could, so that that talent had, had an outlet. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, your book has a dedication that's very sweet and you, but you talk about all the, the talent that could have been there were it not yeah. for the, the AIDS pandemic or the AIDS epidemic. Um, do you think about yeah. that a lot of like who, who, who's, who isn't here? It's, it's funny that you say that right to me today because having just watched Tick, Tick, Boom and one of the things that was so moving about it to me was, you know, you and I are, are, are about the same age and, and, and so looking at 1990 New York City, up-and-coming artist, just out of college, Moondance Diner, that whole world is incredibly familiar to me. And, of course, that whole world is a, is a, is a world where people were dying around you. Um, and I was working at that store where I burnt the flag, the hole in the flag for, you know, for the assassin's window at That's that an time amazing... um, and seeing, you know, actors and theater people coming and going um, and very, very much aware of AIDS. Um, and um, yeah, so, so the, all of the, the people who might've been, um, it does loom large for me. Um, uh, and, and, and of course, it's 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 the unanswerable question, not just in terms of acting talent, because of course that's what my book focuses on, but just in creative talent too, right? How many composers and directors and choreographers who actually did were a bridge to that golden age? The people who did work with Jerome Robbins and 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 Agnes DeMille and 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 Ona White and 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 the people from the golden age who worked directly with those people and could have been the bridge to the next generation, but are gone. Yeah. I think that, to some degree, explains why there's so much ineptitude 
Yeah. In musical theater. I mean, I, I, I saw the show Kimberly Akimbo at the Atlantic Theater Company um, on the same day that I saw Diana the Musical. Yeah. Watched Diana the Musical, and I thought, how is it that, that a musical gets this far to Broadway with this much money and this many professional people involved. And you don't know that like that character, that's a terrible lyric or that character has no business singing because nobody cares about that character. Get it off the stage. And then I saw Kimberly Kimbo. I thought these people, David Lindsay, Abair and Janine Tesori understand the art form and understand the, 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 how to, how to construct a musical theater piece, why a character sings, when a character sings, who needs to sing, why, you know, that's what musical theater is. And I think about the, the bridge, like I said, the, the golden age and the people we lost in between to the people who are doing it now. And I, I don't, you know, it, it, I don't want to overstate it because obviously that's not all there is in the world. But I do wonder if that's part of why um, there's so much musical theater out there that's kind of like, what were you thinking? Have you never seen a musical before? Yeah, you interesting. Know? I want to ask you some random questions about musicals. What do you do with your programs? Oh, my God. Um, so these are this week's. <laughs> you have them. <laughs> But but in Los Angeles, I mean in in New York, I save every playbill, and I I have real debates with myself because I have thousands, yeah, and, and real debates with myself about like this is all available online now. Why am I keep? And I never look at them, so why am I keeping them? They're taking up space, but I cannot bring myself to get rid of them. All right, um, so um, there's that problem. But all right, yes, I. I- once cut the covers off them to stick them over my desk at a workspace. And my friend Danny Casillas was like, he just thought I had just murdered a child. Like, he, he couldn't believe I had done that. Well, uh, He still gives me a I hard was, time about it. When I was in sixth grade, I did the same thing. I cut the covers off and put them over my desk. Yes. However, I got two so that I could uh, cut the covers off and uh, I could do <laughs> There you go. Always I thinking of everything. Well. What's well. a memorable moment you had at a stage door? Um, While you're thinking, I'll tell you mine. Okay. Uh, I went to see If Then in Los Angeles with my friend Felix, and he's friends with Anthony Rapp, and I know Anthony a bit as well. So we yeah. saw him afterwards and at the stage door and whatever and said hi. And we were walking, we were going to go somewhere with him or walking with him or whatever. The way he worked that line was so beautiful and perfect, but it was quick. He was like, I am, I, you know, but it was respectful to the fans, but he had it down. And I was like, very impressive. I'm like, oh, this is a skill. This is yeah, a, and a it's skill that you develop. In it's the stage door is something that I talk about a lot with uh, different people in Wonderful Guy. Christian Borle has some real strong feelings about it and how the stage door, um, because of selfies, has devolved into something else. That at one time it was about an opportunity to connect and to either share or to um, appreciate, and now it's about pose with me and let me, you know, and 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 it's it's, it's I've got to get the picture or nothing right. else. Nothing else matters. And it's transactional, and he sort of feels like, well, we had our moment, and that's how you wanted to use it, and you know, it's a little icky. But 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 you asked for a memorable moment from me, and it yeah. goes back to Lane Stritch in nineteen eighty. Doesn't it always? I, right. <laughs> I went to the, uh, the. I was at the the Follies concert at Lincoln Center. Right. And that concert um, was a. Um, 
mean, I was young. I was 16 years old and I was, I squeezed into my bar mitzvah suit and I bought a scalp ticket in front of the theater. And I, I was so caught up in the whole thing. And afterwards I was not ready to, and I was going off to boarding school the next day. So like when I went home, it was over. I was going to boarding school. Oh my gosh. I did not want the night to end. So I went to the stage door and I wasn't, I wasn't there to kind of like, I wasn't collecting autographs. I just was continuing the night and, and, and sort of watching the people leave. But when Elaine Stritch came out, I was overcome and I did ask for an autograph. Um, and she was in a hurry to get to Tavern on the Green to the party. And she said, you want an autograph? Here, Elaine. And she writes E-L and then just trails the pen down the page. Yeah. <laughs> so E-L. Right. Um, yeah. So you, so, but you got it. I got it. <laughs> All right. It's a good memory. What do you think about curtain calls? Do you, I always try to watch the vibe and see how they relate to each other. I always feel like there's some mystery about the backstageness of it. I don't know. I'm, I'm always intrigued by them. Yeah, I will. And it's, it's, uh, no, I watch too. And sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit appalled by staged curtain calls where like, you know, that actor and that ac- actor come out and hug each other or whatever. I'm like, that's not that they, they they've got a forced hug every night, a staged hug. Ew. Or they have to dance off together. Ew. But sometimes when you watch people walk off stage um, after a curtain call, like in Kimberly Akimbo, and I watched Victoria Clark and the way she related to the six year old who plays for love interest in it um and i watched the, the way they connected and i love that it's like oh they like each other you could tell they yeah, like each other right right or they thought they're 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 crackling about tonight's performance right? <laughs> yeah they had a good experience yeah, yeah. It's, it's really interesting what was it like the first time you went back after covid to a broadway theater uh like it is for a lot of people. It was thrilling to be in the room. And at the same time, I was terrified. What show was it? I was, um, it was um, uh, the show Passover, um, at, that which is now gone, but it was a straight play in New York. That was the first one back um, uh, over, it was late summer. And um, in terrifying in ways that aren't even rational. Like it's, so I don't believe that most people sitting in a theater um, where you're not speaking, you're not shouting, you're not, you know, you're just breathing. The chances of, um, uh, the, at least before Delta, the chances of, of contracting COVID that way seem slim to none. And yet, when I saw somebody three, four rows back without their mask on, I was like going ballistic inside. Um, because I'm like, God damn it, we're all here because we're, we have a, uh, a shared agreement that we're yeah. all going to pay attention to the rules. And this works. This happens. We're able to do this because of the social contract that says we're all going to do this. And you are fucking determined not to do it. And I had the same thing happen last night at a Christmas carol at the Amundsen where they were actually, uh, God love them, at the Amundsen, they were going around and saying to people, please put your mask back on. Please put your mask on. And she, they said it to a woman next to me and she like held it by her ear until the woman passed and then she kind of released it again and I just turned to her and I said put the damn thing on like like you you they made it very clear before you even showed up into the theater that they were going to require this and you came knowing that what are you trying to get away with if you're not willing to do it stay home makes me insane but um I'm going to see that on Sunday did you like it Christmas Carol it's beautiful it's beautiful absolutely beautiful Oh, I'm so excited. I like it. 
Um, have you ever seen an understudy where you were like, oh my gosh, I got to keep my eye on this person? Because I saw the Hamilton understudy here a few months ago. So good. Uh, I think Trey Savage, something like that. I, I might get, I'm getting the name wrong. But I was yeah. like, you're going places. Yeah. And in fact, when uh, one of my favorites um, was uh, when uh, last production, the Kelly O'Hara slash Marin Maisie production of King and I, I saw... Uh, an understudy for for uh, I think it was for Marin I think Marin was out um, but I saw a woman named Ann Sanders who I had never heard of and she was genius genius and yeah sometimes yeah that happens and you're like wow 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 and it reminds you that I hate to say this it's a terrible thing to say but that everybody really is replaceable, that there are so many talented people out there and that the ones who are stars are, uh, to take nothing away from their talent, there's a lot of alchemy involved. It's getting cast in the right part and then and then pe- and people are lazy. So, you know, the reason certain people get cast again and again and again and again and again is because casting directors don't bother to go further than, oh, who's a 40-year-old woman? Chris, you know whoever and Dowd, whatever um you know it's it's um there's there but but there are plenty of other people who are super super talented who just don't have that same break necessarily um i asked it was actually in the first book i asked deborah monk about Kristen chenoweth because they were in the show steel pier and it was um Kristen's uh broadway debut um and i said you know could you tell and deb monk said I could tell she was talented. I could tell I hadn't heard a voice like that, but she wasn't any more talented than lots of other people I know. Um, and and don't get me wrong, I adore her. And I think that she's fantastically talented, but she just got the right opportunity. And I think that's, I think that's really true. That's interesting. Have you seen West Side Story yet? I'm seeing it tonight. Uh, I told you that the reason I had to do that this morning is because I'm going at noon today. Oh my gosh. I'm so <laughs> excited. I can't believe how good it looks. Uh, I'm so into it. I will. Do you cry in musicals for no good reason? Like I do. I, I told you I wept during the tick tick boom number and not because, but, um, uh, it was sad. Um, it was just so moving to me. And uh, um, in the theater, what often makes me cry is the theatricality yes. of something. It's all yeah. of the elements at once are overwhelming. The music, yeah. the sound, the lights, yeah. the voice. It's not even a sad scene. I just start yeah. crying of the sheer beauty of it all. Yeah. Oh, it's so yeah. wonderful. Tell people how they can find their your books. Uh, they're obviously both on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. Um, but I get a big kick out of going into independent bookstores and finding them. Um, uh, because, uh, of course, you know, want to keep independent bookstores alive. Um, uh, of course the flip side is, you know, Amazon, uh, gives you the opportunity to review. So there's that. There's uh, that. Yeah. I love it. And they're, they're a wonderful guy and nothing like a dame. Are you in Lin-Manuel Miranda's bookstore? You've got to be. I, Yes, and uh, so I'm so proud of this um, in a way that is probably I shouldn't be, but in in the drama bookshop, which Lin-Manuel Miranda brought back, um, there's a sculpture of books that sort of, it starts, you know, on a, on a bookshelf. So it starts at eye level. Yes, I've seen pictures of it. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and Nothing Like a Dame is in that sculpture right at eye level. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God. Because you it know really that that was a conscious choice. They're not just like that looked like the right size book. No, it was a choice. 
Well, I think the title is evocative. But, yes, um, but, but it's a love letter to Broadway, and that's what that's about. I have seen Fa- Hamilton three times now, and I've fallen more in love with it. I'm like that. I'm the. I am in the church of ha- of Lin Manuel Miranda. I'm in. A, I'm a member. I've converted. Um, I'm I'm coming back around for a minute. I was like. Um, because I'm not, a, I, I do love Hamilton and I think that what he's doing in the world is great stuff. There was a minute of like the Mary Poppins return stuff where I'm like, oh, he's getting great opportunities and taking them, but he shouldn't take every opportunity. <laughs> but, All right. I, I, but, I can see that. But he but nailed Tick, 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 Boom. I think he did yes, a he wonderful job. Tick, Boom. And I yeah. think in the Heights, even though it's not my favorite movie in the world, I think it does great things. I think it's really good. I thought it was really well done. Um, and we, Anto, you know, the current Disney animated movie is his score, and I think that's special, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm all Church of Miranda. Um, last question. What's something somebody said to you about your books that really moved you? Whether it was somebody in them or just somebody that's a lover of musicals that read them. When you thought, oh, that's why I did it. This is what it's about. Um, oh, that, well, what you just said is a slightly different question than what I was about to answer. Sure. Do take it wherever you want. What moved me, you know, because I'm such a fan of these people, the, 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 the part of me that should be above this isn't, I want the subjects of the book to like it. And, and, and I want them to like my work. Yeah. I shouldn't care as much as I do, but I do care. That's all right. And, um, um, uh, Rolla Sparza said to me, that he got the book and he was up all night reading it. He said, I was up till literally three o'clock in the morning reading it because I was just devouring. Um, uh, it was so interesting to me, these people I've known forever, but I haven't necessarily talked to them about their process and hearing words come out of their mouth that could just as easily come out of mine, but they're saying it. And also the converse, hearing people say different things uh, about it um, has been, you know, so so that was really gratifying to me um, to hear that. I also have heard um, Donna McKechnie called me up and said, Don McKechnie has written her own autobiography, um, but she said, you captured me better than I captured me. Um, and of course, objectively speaking, like, well, that makes sense. I didn't have the filter that you had. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you, but, but, but it's a lovely thing to hear. Yes. Uh, because, because the goal really is to, as, as you know, in these books, for the reader to feel like a fly on the wall and to really feel like they get the person, the essence of the person. Um, so those are two things that, that were, yeah, really gratifying. Uh, before I let you go, can you give any sneak preview for who are the women that are going to be in the third book? Sure. It's funny that you said what you said at the beginning about like, you know, some, like how come she went like Kelly O'Hara, for example, was yeah. not in the first book and is in this one, but then there are some who have blown up since that first right. book. So Jesse Mueller or Stephanie Block yeah. uh, are in this book. And then there are some others like um, Judy Kuhn or Beth Level who, you know, I, I kind of wanted to, but the first, the first time, but there was only so much room. So I have an opportunity to get to them now. I love it. Well, I Alice can't wait for it. And I am so proud of you because I remember when you started this. This was a labor of love. You didn't know if people would say yes to being interviewed. And you just you you brought it to life. And now you're on your third book. That's amazing. And the writing style is beautiful. You ask smart, interesting questions. Congrats. I love it. Buy these, so books, buy these books for the theater lovers in your life or you. And here's my final question. You interviewed some of these people in their homes, I take it. If you yes. had to move into one of them tomorrow, which one would you move into? Oh, one of their homes? Yeah. 
the like the the most appealing home. Yeah, we were like, I could get used to this, Jonathan Groff, in our loft, maybe like a lofty kind of place. Patty Lapone's beach house in North Carolina. <laughs> there it is. That's it. All right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're gonna leave it there, Eddie. Oh, t- what, uh, I will uh, reach out to you later because I want to hear what you think about Westside. And thank you for doing this. Congrats on the book, oh and God. let's Such hang out soon. Okay. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thanks again to Eddie Shapiro. Pick up his book, A Wonderful Guy, for you or the musical theater lover in your life. It's a perfect holiday gift. Um, So this happened after I did the interview with Eddie. I went to see West Side Story with some friends. Uh, My friend Matt bought 10 tickets in advance, and I was lucky enough to get one of them. And, oh, man, it's ravishing. Oh, my goodness. Um, I was very moved by it. I cried. I cry in musicals for no reason a lot. And I did that during America. I was just so over overcome by how spectacular it was all of the elements coming together and I would do that thing in my chair where I would bring my hands to my face like it was a little bit if there had been a camera on me I think there was a lot of it was a very physical reaction I was having here's the other thing I knew the songs better than I thought I'd never like been in that show although I did like a cruise ship version of a few songs but I know that music better than I thought I did and also that show is more tragic than I remember. I was like, oh, I forgot about this. Oh, that happens. Yeah, so it's a lot. But man, oh, what a great year-end movie victory for, you know, the world. Uh, Spielberg just brought so much craft to it, but also it felt so alive. Um, So if you love musicals, and even if you don't, you should definitely check it out. What else happened? I went to Palm Springs for Thanksgiving with some friends. We rented an Airbnb. Enzo went. I went to Joshua Tree for the first time, which was beautiful. Um, And boy, I love that desert hangout moment. So anyway, I should be refreshed, but I still had a lot of work to do on other things. But I feel kind of refreshed um, when I'm not sobbing at musicals. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.